All right. Welcome, everybody, to the uh, first podcast of 2016. My name is Matthew Scholl. I am the Main EMS Medical Director, and with me today is uh, Don Sheets, the Main EMS um, Education Coordinator, and Dr. Tim Pei, the Region 3 Medical Director and uh, Medical Director Extraordinaire of Maine General's Emergency Department. Hello, hello from Waterville. This is Tim Pei. Good morning, everybody. Um, it has been some time since we last talked and since there's been some time since our podcast. Um, I think it's fair to say that Don and myself and Tim and the other MDPB members have been a little bit busy with some of the other projects we've had going on, including the uh, protocol updates and the Pegasus project and a couple other projects. But we're really excited to uh, come back and uh, meet with you today, and we thank you for being here. Uh, Don, just since it has been some time, do you want to go over some of the format of our podcast and remind people of sort of the way that we approach these things? Yeah, traditionally, uh, we've always tried to take a few minutes right at the beginning to sort of do a main EMS update, let folks know what's going on, um, things that they should be looking out for, and uh, projects that they can get involved in. And um, then that's usually followed by the piece of education that we're going to do, and then we try to follow that um, briefly with some frequently asked questions that we get. Uh, so for today, um, our frequently asked question is actually really what's going to drive our education, which uh, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about spine management today um, because of, uh, well, we've had a fairly large uh, change in our um, process of spine management recently. We've seen some good outcomes from that. We've seen some um, not as excellent outcomes that we want to chat about. Um, so we'll get to that in a moment, but uh, briefly for our Mania, Mania MS update, uh, we want to make folks aware that right now Maine EMS is going through a rules um, update process. Uh, that is something that's happening through the Maine EMS board. They've got a subcommittee. Um, they're meeting on the second and fourth uh, Mondays of each month. Um, those meetings are actually published on our website uh, in, in case I actually got those dates wrong. But if people want to get involved in that process or see what's going on, those are open meetings. Um, there is, uh, it's run like the board meetings. There's a, a fairly formal process. There's an open comment section in the beginning where anyone can speak. And then after that, it's really up to the deliberation of the board. Um, but they're really going cover to cover in the rules right now. So if there's something that you feel is important or something that you want to get on the table, um, now's the time to get involved with that. Um, we're going to be opening up the protocol update soon, and Matt has some comments that he wanted to make about um, that process and kind of address yeah, you all. Yeah, so um, as you all know, every two years we review and update the main EMS protocols, and one of the things that we've noticed is uh, that our protocols are always best when lots of folks weigh in and are involved in them, and our protocols are made best when, they're, when the process is inclusive, Granted, the MDPB spends a significant amount of time deliberating and discussing and dialoguing about these protocols, but we typically always get some good input from you uh, as providers and from other stakeholders, be it from emergency medicine, from trauma, from neurology or cardiology, etc. We wanted to uh, put out a, a sort of a call to everyone and, and ask you to be involved. One of the things that I've always, uh, it's always been a little bit disheartening to me, and I think other MDPB members have mentioned this as well, is that sometimes we get excellent, excellent input from EMS providers during the protocol update process, and we have to stall and bring that into the next protocol process. And we want to see if we can capture some of your excellent input uh, in the early, uh, early uh, phases of the protocol update. 
Um, just to give you some insight, we're going to talk more about this in the near future. That's going to be a, the topic of our next podcast. Um, but just to be aware, since this process is going to be uh, starting early on or very soon, uh, the way that we uh, have, have approached this is that each of the medical directors, the MDPB members currently, are assigned a section of the protocols. Those assignments are listed on the main EMS website. If you have any specific comments toward a section, please forward them to the medical director who is the lead on that section. You can also uh, meet with that uh, medical director virtually on a conference call every month uh, before we review a topic. Um, we will host a webinar, uh, a, a, an online slash on-phone webinar that you can actually talk to the medical director and give them your input. And then finally, um, you are always more than welcome to attend the MDPB meetings. Those are open forum meetings on the third Wednesday of each month. Um, and we will be beginning our, our MDPB uh, review in earnest in May of 2016. I believe the date is May 18th. Just a little, uh, little caveat, um, because of a community paramedicine conference that's going to be going on in South Portland, and because the MDPB is so vested in community med paramedicine and wants to be involved and engaged in that dialogue, we will have our meeting in May at uh, the site of that conference, and we'll have more information about that conference and such in the future. We have Our goal this year is to actually uh, uh, average a podcast every other month, and we have some other interesting topic sets. One of the things that we've been interested in doing for a long time is a... a, a, a um, a verbal history of Maine EMS by reaching out to some of the uh, folks who have been involved in Maine EMS, um, including former directors, former re current and former regional directors, and other folks who can really give us some perspective about Maine EMS. Uh, we want to um, spend some time talking about out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, and there's some tremendously exciting stuff around cardiac arrest that's going to be happening in Maine. We want to highlight and, and really uh, um, uh, uh, sh talk to you about. And we want to talk about um, shock and identifying shock. And then finally, we really want to talk about communication in EMS and um, how to best uh, promote patient care through our communication. So those are some of the topic sets we have coming up. And again, we're going to be aiming to do this every other month uh, and get these out to you in that time frame. A reminder that we also really, really enjoy your questions, your comments. That's sort of the intention of the frequently asked questions part. Please send those to Don. Either leave him a voice message or, a, or an email through, uh, you can go to the main EMS uh, website to get his contact information. Those are really essential. If you have a question that you have been struggling with or, or can't find an answer to, please send it to us and we'll try to answer it for you and everyone else. Also, if there are topics that you'd like to hear about in the future, um, specific podcasts, please let us know about that as well. Um, it's also an opportunity for us to actually consider other um, trainings that we can put on MEMSED, things like that. So please, by all means, reach out to us, um, and we'll try to work those into our, our timeline. Tim, did you have something you wanted to add as well? Yeah, just, uh, just to bring home um, frontline EMT paramedics or input on protocols, so the uh, lidocaine introduction for IOs, was that came from an individual paramedic firefighter in Augusta, John Robertson at Augusta Fire, who did the research, brought the literature together, put together a very nice, well-thought-out, well, 
uh, a lot of effort on a proposal, and then we brought that to the MDPB for debate, and uh, and he, through that effort, got the agreement of the other uh, medical directors to to okay that protocol addition. So it's very much possible for frontline folks to bring a protocol change forward. I will say it takes a lot of work. Um, you you do need to do uh, a bunch of homework to get these kind of pr- protocols through the MDPB, but it's definitely worth the effort. Um, whether or not they get approved or not, it's a, it's a good experience. So anybody um, for Region 3, I, I'd love to go through this project again and love to get another um, protocol change from the front line. Great. That, that's a great example, Tim. Thanks for bringing that up. So without further ado, let's transition and talk a little bit about our, our subject for the day. Um, the, one of the big reasons why we have Dr. Pay with us today is because we wanted to spend some time talking about spine management as you know, we we uh, did some fairly we made some fairly large changes to our protocols and really fundamentally changed the way that we approach uh, spine management. I, I've always said, and I continue to like to say, we're not changing. We didn't change who we immobilized. We just changed how we immobilized. And um, now we are eight months out from our original protocol update. We did some. Uh, we did had some nuanced um, additions in December, and we thought it'd be a really great opportunity to kind of look back, um, touch base on some of the history around this, uh, and spend some time uh, also talking about what we're what we're seeing uh, at the state offices, what Tim and I are noticing in our practice, what we're hearing about from others, and um, really continually commit ourselves to doing the best we can around managing spine patients. So what we're going to try to do today is go back to the basics and remind ourselves what Dr. Peter Goth taught us in the 1990s, what the outcome of that was in the early 2000s. That that was taught to us by Dr. John Burton. Both of those two folks have been integral to Maine EMS in many different roles, including state medical director positions. And then we're going to kind of talk a little bit about backboards and, and a very brief recap of what changed and, and how, why it changed. And then finally talk about how we're doing and, and what, we're, what we're really excited about, where we have noticed some confusion and try to uh, clarify those, that, those confusions and then uh, move on from there. So without further ado, why don't we start with some background. Now, um, I mentioned that Tim is here and, and it's really nice to have Tim here because he was the medical director who uh, led the transition in the green section and really kind of led the MDPB in that discussion, has been a spokesperson for that discussion in many venues. But the other thing that many of you probably do not know about Dr. Pei is his direct lineage to Dr. Goth. Tim is Peter's nephew, and it's neat to have him for that, that historical um, vantage as well, since Peter was so instrumental to our cervical spine um, management and evaluation process in the uh, mid to early 1990s. And Peter really led the nation and certainly led the EMS community on this idea. And what's really cool in my mind is to see how many other states have picked up what Peter started doing in the 1990s. And what he started at that point and what seemed fairly novel at that point has really become the standard of care both in EMS and in emergency medicine. So um, let's begin about kind of thinking about the things that we knew going into the 2015 protocol. This is all the stuff that Dr. Goth had taught us. Um, Tim, do you want to kind of start this process up and this dialogue up and, and, and remind us what we knew coming into the 2015 protocols? Um, sure. So 
I mean, the first thing about Peter, this idea of uh, being able to clear the spine, just so it's kind of a fun context. So he um, was very involved with Outward Bound and wilderness medicine. His other um, involvement in, in sort of contributions to, to medicine really center around his wilderness medicine uh, concepts and, and, um, and teachings. And he found that carrying a, a injured patient out of the woods on an outward bound course or other wilderness expeditions was a, a significant event. And if it was needed, it was absolutely something that you needed to do. If, it's, if you can avoid it safely, that's where the motivation came from. And when I worked for North Carolina outward bound and we had an injured student we would um, we would notify the local juvenile delinquent hall. They would fill a school bus full of teenagers and would come out in the woods, and it would be a 30-plus person carryout just for uh, a patient that couldn't walk. So it was a significant uh, event, um, and that's I think what motivated that think that that train of thought. But um, as far as what we knew, um, I think I, I I need a little help here, Matt, on where you want to start on this. Well, let's let's just kind of maybe walk through our our protocol, um, and I want to do this for for a very specific reason. I um, I was working recently, and we received a field trauma patient, and the EMS uh, providers had cleared the cervical spine, and um, pretty quickly after the patient got to us, a collar was applied, and it turns out that one of the EMTs in the room turned to me and said, "Hey, you know." Why does that always happen? Why do why is the hospital so much more conservative than we are when it comes to cervical spine management? And I think that the answer to that question might be rooted a little bit in what we um, how we approach spines and spine management, and what goes into that thought process from our side, and how that contrasts in some ways um, uh, against certain situations in the hospital. So um, I think the first piece here is the idea of mechanism of injury and the way that we use mechanism of injury in EMS. Now, um, if you look at some of the um, uh, the original uh, studies and original discussions about um, cervical spine clearance, there's really two uh, anchoring uh, papers. There's the Nexus study and there's the Canadian C-spine rule. And interestingly, in the Nexus study, mechanism of injury was not necessarily a factor that came into whether or not you ruled out a spine injury or ruled in a spine injury. Contrast that to the Canadian cervical spine uh, evaluation process, and mechanism of injury is actually one of the first steps that's utilized to um, consider spine manage- spines and whether a spine should be immobilized or not. And What's interesting is is sort of our approach to main EMS in which we don't necessarily uh, say that you can't immobilize a spine with a higher mechanism of injury, but we use mechanism of injury to consider who we introduce or who we evaluate for spine injury. Now, there's one really neat nuance of this that I want to kind of mention now and highlight later. I think it's fair to say that we're all pretty well on board with high mechanisms. We're pretty, um, we're pretty um, uh, able, we're, we're fairly reliable, reliable in our agreement around low mechanism of injuries. There is a bit of a gray zone where there is, um, where there is um, uh, probably uh, less uh, consensus around what consists of 
what is a mechanism that could hurt a person, what is a mechanism that wouldn't hurt a person. Um, but I, wa- I want to highlight one population in our state that really deserves a little bit of extra attention around when it comes to mechanism, and that's the geriatric population. And I think we need to be a little bit more conservative when we think about the mechanism that would uh, introduce the patient into a spine evaluation process. And I'll just leave a teaser here right now, and we'll come back to that when we talk about some other stuff a little bit later. So, um, and Matt, one thing I was just thinking about as you were talking about that is, um, you know, one of my first jobs was as a dishwasher, right? And I think about the geriatric population as the very fragile wine glass, easy to break, right? And then I think of everybody that's adult and younger um, as sort of the, the more bulky Coffee mug? Uh, beer mug, you know, or coffee <laughs> mug, right? That's, that's hard to, harder to break. And I think if we go about it with that thinking, and it really comes from the older you get, the thinner your bones become with osteoporosis, and the easier it is to break them. Um, and I think, what, I think we all agree with that. We all get that concept. What we want to do in later in this talk is try to make it more concrete, give kind of uh, definitions of where those ages start and, and what are those... Um, what are those considerations in far more of a concrete black and white way? Even though we're trying to make a gray area of medicine black and white, uh, you and I will sort of share how we do that in, in practice, both in the street and, and in our EDs. That's a, that's a, that's a great metaphor for that. Um, so um, that's our, our sort of, uh, our, one of our first steps in this consideration is sort of considering the mechanism as a means to decide who gets evaluated and sort of the the very concrete black and white example I have is that if if I were to uh, accidentally injure myself um, opening up a box today um, that wouldn't necessarily be a mechanism you would be concerned about but if I were to fall a significant height that would be something you would be uh, you would be concerned about agreed um, so the next step, the next step in our, our process is to really ask yourself, is the patient reliable? Are they intoxicated? Are they suffering from any change in mental status? Are you, are you able to uh, interact with them? Is there a language barrier? Are they suffering from any stressors like an acute stress re- response, etc.? cetera? Um, I think all those things kind of get to this idea of reliability in the patient. Um, next step is to ask ourselves about distracting injuries. Um, and I think it's fair to say that when I notice discrepancy between hospitals and, um, uh, and EMS providers, it's in what I call the gray zone areas. And reliability and, um, and uh, distracting injuries are kind of the, the two predominant gray zone areas. Uh, Tim, do you want to delve into that anymore and, and, and sure. talk about it anymore? Yeah, so what I... Um the way I keep myself consistent on these is I have um, certain statements that I always force myself to document, and when I write them down, they serve as a cross-check, and then it's also a, a check on scene when I'm making these decisions of, when I write this down later, am I going to feel comfortable writing it down? And one of those statements that I always try to write is, this patient is calm, cooperative, sober, and alert. And for me, that defines a reliable patient. Uh, and if I can't write each of those words down with confidence when I document my run report, then uh, then I can't say that they're reliable. 
And then what comes down to it is the calm and cooperative is the idea that they're not in an acute stress reaction. So it's not uh, me in the front seat with my little two-year-old in the back seat, and I'm after a motor vehicle crash. And if I am 100% um, distracted by where is my toddler, um, that's an acute stress reaction. I'm not a reliable patient at that time. But if I can write calm and cooperative, meaning they can, you know, I can hear, I can talk to that patient as the as the EMT and say, "Do you hear me talking to you? I need you to focus right now. Can you feel my hand on the back of your neck?" Uh, and I can get them to acknowledge, "Yes, I, I, I'm, I'm hearing you. I'm with you." You know, and not um, just asking me repeatedly, "Where is my kid?" That's sort of one of those gray area. Are they reliable? Are they having an acute stress reaction? The other part that's hard is when you say sober. Like, what does it mean in the street, uh, um, in real practice, your next shift? What does it mean when it is a patient sober or not? And this is a very much gray area. And for me, this is, um, it's really, again, can I write with confidence that this patient is sober? Uh, and what Peter said in his original writings was it's not about whether you have had, you smell alcohol in somebody's breath or they state how many beers they've had. It's really a clinical judgment. Are they reliable? Are they sober enough uh, to feel your palpations on the back of their neck? And are they sober enough to feel a painful fracture? Um, and that really is, in the end, a clinical judgment. Tim, I think that's awesome. I really appreciate that. And, you know, I was thinking the same thing recently, and I thought that it might be interesting for providers to uh, to think about or to to go on a little historical trip with us and to look at what at least the original authors of either the national literature or the main literature said. You kind of touched on what Peter mentioned, which I think is awesome. I'm going to actually um, talk, I wanted to kind of go back and um, really validate what you mentioned by looking at how the um, authors of the Nexus study approached this. Now, Remember that um, the Nexus study was a project that went on in the 90s and the early 2000s, published, I believe, in 2000 by a guy named Jerry Hoffman, who is an emergency physician out of California. This was a multi-center study that asked emergency physicians to um, uh, use their clinical judgment in who gets uh, spine radiography and who doesn't, but then went through a validation process validating what essentially is similar to the main EMS protocol. Um, And what they said specifically, I actually wrote this down for us to think about, and this is a little bit long, but bear with me. They said, we chose not to define the individual criteria of the decision instrument explicitly for two reasons. First, we do not believe such criteria can be precisely defined in a clinically meaningful way. An attempt to define a distracting injury, for example, with a long list of various injuries that could distract a patient from cervical spine injury would be extremely misleading. Some contusions, for example, may be associated with extreme pain, whereas not all long bone fractures are particularly painful. Therefore, we allowed the clinicians to judge whether the patients had an injury that could produce distracting pain and thus required cervical spine imaging. Similarly, we believe that evidence that the evidence of intoxication and the level of alertness are best evaluated on the basis of clinical judgment rather than laboratory tests or uniform criteria. What that's basically saying is that healthcare professionals need to make judgments at the time of patient care. This is exactly what Tim mentioned and one of the things I hope you recognize is that there are lots of places in the main EMS protocols and in your practice as an EMS provider where we ask you to make a judgment. I also think that Dr. Goth's way and the original teachings 
that occurred in Maine in the 1990s is a really good way to anchor this for us. And, and I, Tim did a great job summarizing that. I'll, I'll kind of quote him. And, he, and what he said was that the real question is not about the presence of alcohol or a distracting injury. It's whether the patient and the exam are reliable. And I, I think those are the questions you need to ask yourself. I really like Tim's approach to this as well. Asking yourself, is the patient calm, cooperative, sober, and alert in every interaction? And remind yourself, if they fail the exam, it's okay. They, they become immobilized and we will address it at um, once we will address it as their exam evolves and as their we get more information and more data on them i think the i think the most important thing on these gray areas distracting injuries sobriety uh, acute stress reaction is to document um, the story that led you to your clinical judgment decision and then also before that to report to the ED staff when you arrive, what that, or to the uh, transporting service if your first response, the story of where you uh, got to that clinical decision. And it's just saying why. You know, and examples would be, um, you know, they're answering questions, they know where they are, I, I have, I, they do not have slurred speech, um, they're talking in full, uh, calm, understandable sentences. Right, all these all these descriptors that that help you with that subconscious um, decision or clinical judgment. And the other thing I ask my providers um, when I review notes is to say, I want to read the line. It is my clinical judgment that this patient is sober, or it is my clinical judgment that this is not a distracting injury. Uh, and I want them to make that concrete statement because that's what it means to make a judgment decision is being willing to write it down that way. That's a very good point. So. When I see, getting back to the story, when I was in the trauma room a couple days ago um, and one of our providers asked that question about the EMS um, decision and the hospital putting a collar on the patient after they've been cleared in the field, I think when I, in my experience, one of the reasons why that occurs is when there is discrepancy between what the provider, the, the pre-hospital provider felt and what the hospital feels. And I think your idea of communication and robust communication, Tim, and the ability to really, in a meaningful way, pass on why you believe an injury is not distracting or why a patient is not intoxicated is really important because um, these decisions, when they occur, at least in my hospital, are very rapid decisions. You know, it's one of the things that happens pretty early on. And... Um, your, the ability for you as a provider, an EMS provider, to, to really communicate why you did what you did, I think, is an important tool in that process. I think the other thing to reflect on is that these exams can change over time. And that at any point, we can deviate from our initial decision. Yes. If, if we're transporting a patient and suddenly something keys into us that we think we may have... Um, initially ruled somebody out that we shouldn't have. Um, maybe they were suffering from that acute stress reaction. We didn't recognize it. And then suddenly now they have midline cervical pain. Um, take the time, you know, take spinal precautions at that point. Or first responders were on scene. They could not determine that the patient was calm, cooperative, sober, alert for whatever reason. And they've taken measures to um, immobilize this patient. And 
you arrive, the patient is now calm, cooperative, sober, they're alert, all of these things, and you determine that they don't necessarily need that, that can change at that time too. And, and that's no different than when we arrive at the hospital that you know, we, we often used to see patients coming off backboards um, almost immediately when we got to the hospital. Sometimes we see patients have collars removed immediately. And that's because the patient's condition may have changed between the time that we initiated care and where they're at in that care now. That's a very good point. And I think it's important to recognize that that exam can change for the positive, meaning the patients can get better in the case that Don describes and the collar may come off. There have also been situations in which the patient can get worse and they can develop pain in transit or after the acute stress of the, of the event is over and the collar might be applied in those situations. Yeah, I think it's a great point. It's also something to remember that it doesn't mean that you made a mistake. Um, or that you were wrong when you made the decision that you did. It just means that in trauma, I sort of think of trauma as 10-minute life cycles, right? It's almost a new patient every 10 minutes um, as the trauma process and the pathophysiology of traumatic injuries evolve. Um, and I think we have to both, when we come on scene, be careful that we uh, acknowledge that to folks that cared for the patient before us. And also, when we're handing patient care over, that we remind ourselves, independent of whether... Um, we were critiqued or not, that, that this, this disease process changes over time. Yeah, another good point. You know, I think, so I mentioned earlier that the first, the first thing that occurred to me when I was asked that question about why collars were applied sometimes really is in those gray zone concepts dis- surrounding distracting injuries, sur- surrounding intoxication, uh, surrounding uh, reliability. And I, I really do think Tim's idea, Peter's original idea, anchoring on that concept of calm, collect, sober, and alert, being able to communicate around that, recognizing that exam change is all very important. But the second thing that's occurred to me as I've thought about this sort of um, more recently is that another reason in my experience that collars are applied to patients is when the physician who's receiving the patient hears about really significant mechanisms of injury. And what's interesting about that in my mind is that I mentioned earlier the nexus criteria, the nexus rule doesn't necessarily require the uh, provider to consider mechanism. We certainly consider mechanism as far as who enters into our, our evaluation process. Um, the Canadian cervical spine rule does consider mechanism. And I think one of the things that might be happening is that our, our um, sometimes collectively we think in nexus but we also introduce this Canadian cervical spine concept of mechanism too and I, I don't know how to um, uh, how to overcome that other than continually working with our young physicians and continually uh, working to train our young physicians around uh, evaluation of spine and spine injury um, I don't know does anyone else have any thoughts about that well, my, my only other thought is sort of this, this concept of trust and verify, right? Mm-hmm. So when I receive a patient, uh, I'm just initiating care. Um, and the, one of the first things I hear about in the report is the mechanism. So I may secure the uh, C-spine until I have a chance to get to my complete neurologic exam. But it may be something where that I trust that this patient has been cleared. But I also, like I said before, understand the 10-minute uh, sort of life cycles of a trauma patient. So I may just 
put that person under a collar or put a collar on them until I can verify your exam that you just very well presented to me, right? Um, and I think just having a little bit of forgiveness for that and understanding that um, the ED providers, when we receive care, uh, we trust what you did is absolutely right. We just are going to take some time to verify it, and then oftentimes that collar will come off um, just as you uh, secured C-spine, did your full spinal rule out, and then decided not to continue to immobilize that spine. So, um, and I think, I don't know how to fix that, Matt, other than um, I want everybody that receives care from a patient at a time of sign-off to trust that the care beforehand was perfect and then also to verify it. Yeah, but I don't, you know, I don't think we have to fix it, though. I think one of the things that, as EMS providers, we also need to acknowledge is that it's safe. If we make this about the patient, this care that's being initiated in, in the emergency room as part of this patient's overall care from when we started to when they're going to hopefully walk out of the ER, it's all about the patient. And if this is what's safe for the patient and reevaluating the patient is what's going to happen, there's no harm in this. Hmm. It's safe for the patient. We should accept that as EMS that we're making this about our patient and it's safe. I just had an echo of Jay Bradshaw in the back of my mind saying, what's right for the patient, Don? Thanks for bringing us back to the patient. Um, so, yeah, let's talk about that then. So, um, Let's talk about safety and let's talk about how well that our, our protocol uh, performs. If we're, if we're thinking about safety and we're thinking about what's right for the patient. Now, um, perhaps the largest study, this, this validation of um, a clinical decision rule to consider who needs uh, x-rays to evaluate their cervical spine, uh, or what's what we commonly call the nexus uh, uh, paper, that's probably the largest of our, our, our um, studies out there. Tens of thousands of patients, um, uh, close to 1,000 cervical spine injuries that were uh, identified there. And the sensitivity of that rule was between 99.0 and 99.6. The specificity was 12.9%. And the negative predictive value, depending on whether or not you're looking at every patient, or the patient with clinically significant injuries was 99.9%. Now, I know that for many of you, all you heard there was blah, 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 99.9%. And I, 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 um, I will tell you that many of you were probably not um, tortured by statistics or epidemiology like I was and that maybe Tim and Don were. And so I want to kind of drill down on those words, sensitivity, and specificity and find some ways to make this, this real for you. So um, real briefly, sensitivity and specificity are ways to describe the performance of a test. And if we think about the best test, right, the best test would be able to, to, to detect disease 100% of the time. And additionally, the best test would rule out disease 100% of the time. So the idea here is it would be positive for the disease when the disease is present and it would be negative for the disease when the disease is absent. Now, the way that we describe this in medicine is uh, through the concepts of sensitivity and specificity, where sensitivity is the ability of a test to detect disease when the disease is present, um, or the percentage of sick patients correctly identified as having the disease, and specificity is the ability of a test not to detect disease when the disease is absent, or the percentage of healthy patients correctly identifying, identified as not having the disease. Um, so, uh, so basically, 
uh, in the case of Nexus, it, what we're saying is the test is very good at finding patients with cervical spine injury, uh, somewhere between 99 and 99.9% .9 of the time. But what it's not good at is weeding out all the patients without cervical spine injury. The rate here, or the, the specificity, is 12.9%. Another way to think of this is called a negative predictive value, which essentially means um, what's the chance of not having the disease if the disease is negative? In our, I'm sorry, if the, what's the chance of not having disease if the test is negative? In our case, what's the likelihood that a patient will have a clinically significant spine injury if they pass all the required elements to not place a cervical collar? In the case of Nexus, uh, which is extremely close to the main EMS spine clearance protocol, the negative predictive value is 99.9% uh, for clinically significant events. Again, meaning that the chance of not having a clinically significant injury if you pass Nexus uh, or main EMS protocols is very, very high. So I just want to back up for one sec and just make sure that we've got this right. So sensitivity, we're saying it's going to identify patients who are at risk and probably have the injury. Yeah, or might have, it's going to identify patients um, who are at risk for the disease. Right. And then specific, in this case, what we're saying is that this test actually has the potential to rule more patients in who actually don't have the disease because the spe specificity is actually fairly low. Yeah. So that's a really good point, Don. We gain such high sensitivity by ruling more patients in than have the disease. And admittedly, what I think our providers, everyone listening should take from this is that these are admittedly conservative tests. Now, even though these tests are conservative, we know from some of Dr. John Burton, our former uh, main EMS medical director, uh, when he looked at this in the early 2000s, we were able to, uh, he was able to identify essentially 32,000 trauma patients over a 12-month period. And using our main EMS uh, protocol, we only managed uh, 13,000 spines. So we were able to, to take the 32,000 and reduce that significantly by using this protocol. But even, just to give you some better numbers, we immobilized sent close to 13,000 people and we had uh, 154 spine fracture patients over that period of time. So we are admittedly conservative because we want to find all the patients who have the potential for a bad injury and immobilize them. So can I can I try an analogy, Matt? So this Absolutely. is a lot like this is a lot like going through airport security, right? So we want to be absolutely sure when you go through airport security that we don't miss a bomb. But at the same time, we're going to catch things like my cell phone or my belt buckle or um, the the wire uh, rings on my shoes, right? Uh, and these are all things that are not true bombs, um, but because I can tolerate some of those ones that are wrong, I know that I haven't missed one that's right. Exactly. And that's having a high sensitivity test, right? Um, but you sacrifice it because you get a lot of false positives, right? So the, and the analogy carries through to say, I really cannot tolerate missing a spinal fracture that could paralyze somebody. But there are going to be times where I get numbness and tingling or I get some other tenderness on the neck that has nothing to do with a spine fracture, but I have to be careful or conservative, right, that I don't miss something that could be. And, yeah. and I think what's great about what you're talking about, Tim, though, is that actually one of the things that we're going to talk a little bit more about later, though, um, in some of the cases that Matt's going to bring up, 
But I think this is a great time to just talk about we've introduced a new level of safety in managing patient spines by removing the hard, flat surface with no padding. Historically, providers have been really cautious about not putting patients that don't need to be on a hard, flat surface on a hard, flat surface because we know that there's a lot of risk associated with that. Now that we have new spinal management guidelines in terms of utilizing this nice padded stretcher but then still maintaining all of the other measures we used to, those false positives that we used to get are actually safer now than they ever have been before. So one of the things that we really want to stress during this conversation today with all of you is that we need to be very conservative. We need, and, and I don't mean that in terms of just put everyone in a mobilize everybody. But what I mean is that when we're doing our assessments, we need to be very thorough. We need to be very diligent about it. And if there's any positive in there, then immobilize the spine. It's safe. Immobilize the patient. It's safe. And we're doing what's best for the patient in doing that. Yeah, I think, Don, that's a really good point. Like, I, I look at uh, spinal clearance as an all-or-nothing event. You can't, get, you can't get your process 90% right and get a good grade. You have to cover every element of a spinal clearance because any single piece that's abnormal or unreassuring or positive means you stop and you have to immobilize. So you can't, you can't miss a point on it. It's, it's a little bit stressful when you really look at the the reason that this test is reliable on the literature is because everybody that did it in the studies did it absolutely, completely, thoroughly hit every point. Yeah, very good point. So <clears throat> I mentioned Dr. Burton, Dr. John Burton, um, earlier on in his paper, and I think it's a neat opportunity for us to ask ourselves how did, um, how did uh, his paper tell us about what did, what did his paper tell us about our system and how did our system perform in comparison to the national literature? Well, uh, we did pretty good. In fact, our negative predictive value, our ability to say that if you have, if you, if you um, again, if you have no of those, none of those elements, what's that, does that, how does that com, uh, suggest, or does that suggest you might have disease? Our negative predictive value was exactly the same as that of the Nexus folks. Um, and there was one instance in which a patient, well, there were 20 uh, fractures that were not identified using the Manios protocol. Only one of those fractures was a clinically significant fracture, meaning something that required any operative management. And I think looking at that patient is really fascinating. That was an 86-year-old patient who was moving furniture and had the acute onset of pain. She actually did not call 911 for a week, and then a week later was found to have a subluxed T6 on T7 injury. So a pretty, a pretty odd case to begin with. Um, I think it's also interesting, though, to look at the other 19 patients, and this gets back to something that I had mentioned earlier on about uh, uh, elderly patients or the geriatric population. Of the 19 patients, the average age was 753 now, there were three patients under the age of 50 in this group, a 27-year-old, a 36-year-old, and a 24-year-old. When these three are taken out, the average age increases to 80.6 years old. In this group, there were three motor vehicle accidents. That included two of the under 50-year-olds, the 27-year-old, the 36-year-old, as well as the 69-year-old. The remaining patients, including the 24-year-old, were injured by one of the following six me mechanisms. Number one, a fall from standing height. That was 11 of the patients, including, interestingly, the 24-year-old. 
Number two, uh, one patient was dropped to the ground by a caregiver. Number three, one patient fell out, out of a bed. Number four, one patient fell down four steps. Number five, one patient bent over and noted pain. And then one patient, we, number six patient, we couldn't uh, figure out the mechanism uh, based on the, the available information. I mention this not to uh, scare anyone or not to um, suggest we should um, automatically uh, immobilize every patient over the age of 75 or who appears frail for their age, but to really impress upon you that your consideration of a meaningful mechanism starts to change a little bit as we encounter the elderly population. Uh, and so what what might be a, 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 um, a, a non-remarkable mechanism for a sub-30-year-old healthy lumberjack-appearing guy like Mr. Sheets here with me um, would could be a, a larger mechanism for a person over the age of 75. Uh, and the interesting one I think is that's important to consider is the fall from standing height. Now again, the way to use this information that we're passing on to you is not to necessarily immobilize every person who falls from a standing height, but to consider falls from a standing height as a potential mechanism and to evaluate everyone um, uh, who, is over, who is of an older age uh, and consider the potential for an injury in that population. So, Matt, the way um, I'm very curious how you and Don uh, do this when you're taking care of patients, but I'll sort of my thought process of how I translate that study to my practice. So if I have a uh, normal-aged adult, right, for me that's less than uh, 75 years old, um, so non-elderly in my mind, so I use the 75 age as sort of the switch to say this is a geriatric or an elderly patient uh, in the context of spinal injuries. And for that person, what the, the first level of mechanism that is meaningful for me, meaning that it's possible to cause a neck fracture or spine fracture, um, is a standing from a fall from standing height. So that's me. If I'm standing um, washing dishes and I have a syncopal event and I pass out, and then I fall backwards without in any way bracing my fall, right? That's a fall from standing height for me. That is the first. Um, kind of the lowest mechanism that I would now turn on my spinal assessment. And anything higher than that or more forceful from that uh, clearly turns it on. But anything less than that and in a healthy adult, um, I may not initiate it. But once you hit age 75, now it's no longer standing height. It's fall from chair. It's fall out of bed. It's like that caregiver analogy where somebody was somebody dropped you. That now is a lower threshold for me to turn on that switch for a meaningful mechanism of injury. And it's sort of the same analogy for me. You know, I can, I can drop a, uh, a coffee mug out of my hand into the sink. It's not going to break. But if I just tip over a wine glass, it is going to break. So I have to have an age equivalent, or really what I'm doing with that age is saying osteoporotic, meaning thin bone equivalent. Um, so you, if you really are going to get academic on this, use the age. But you also got to be careful of other things that thin the bones. So my COPD patient that's been on steroids every day for the last 15 years, I may move that age down further because I know for them all those steroids every year, day in, day out, have thinned their bones sooner than if they had not been on those and had just aged normally. So you really are using 75 to say these bones are thin enough to be wine glass fragile. 
I'm, I'll be I'll be honest with you. I'm probably actually more conservative than you um, when I'm working, and I think my my rationale for that is that one, I I often don't know the age of my patients initially. Um, I'm just having a conversation with them, and depending on the situation, um, I may not know their age for a period of time actually. Um, so I generally kind of rule it any person who uh, who just appears to me as um, an older population um, or who may have some of these other risk factors that you just discussed, um, they're probably just going to automatically get an assessment from me. Um, you know, it's, again, how long does it take me to do uh, a spinal assessment? Not very long. Um, and if that... Uh, introduces safety into into what I'm doing, then that that's relatively easy for me to just rationalize. Hey, you know what? I'm just going to do it. If nothing else, it's good practice for me and helps me re- remember all the uh, steps that I'm supposed to that I'm supposed to introduce into my assessment. Um, but again, a lot of that's just because I I don't always know the age up front. Um, but all those same mechanisms that you talk about the the I slipped out of the chair to the floor or um, I slipped off the edge of my bed or fell out of bed. All of those same things still apply. It's just I don't know that I tie it as much to age, but certainly if I know a patient is over that 75 cusp, it, it increases my suspicion even more. Great point. So thank you both for that. I think that's a nice summary of sort of what we knew coming into the 2015 protocol update. Let's uh, let's transition a little bit, and um, maybe, Tim, I don't know if you would mind um, – leading us through a brief, maybe five or so minute discussion about what the medical director and practice board uh, was uh, uh, considering as we went into the 2015 protocol review process. I I just want to, maybe I'll pause for a second to say that this was a collaborative process with the main EMS Trauma Advisory Committee. Um, The TAC or the Trauma Advisory Committee was essential in kind of considering this with us as well. We try to work very collaboratively with our trauma uh, system, and in fact, the trauma, um, the TAC actually helped us by publishing white papers and being part of the communication process with our hospitals, as a matter of fact. So, Tim, um, let's uh, let's try to talk a little bit about the evidence around backboards. What's the benefit? What's the downside? What does the literature tell us? What do we know? about backboards, and, and what was the purpose of the transition here in Maine around uh, uh, use of backboards? So I think the, um, the most important uh, motivation for considering an update on this was that we had hit a threshold with numerous studies that were raising clinical concerns about backboards hurting patients. Um, and what the literature broke it into was several areas. They were sort of the downsides of the backboard. And the first one was that the stiff, hard plastic or wood backboard caused pain. Um, and it was both where the bony prominences of our bodies were in contact with that hard, fo- that hard board and also the fact that we don't actually sh- – our, our bodies aren't actually shaped as a flat surface. We have a, a spine curve that's natural – and when you lie down on that, it, the gravity pulls on those muscles and creates pain over time. Um, many, many studies showed that. Some of the studies on the point of contact for the bony prominence on the hardboard actually measured the perfusion, the blood flow to that skin, and noticed that after a period of time, 30 minutes, you actually had a decrease in uh, blood flow. 
which for certain patients like the elderly or those with poor perfusion to start with or diabetics were higher, most high risk of having um, the beginnings of a, of, a, of a pressure sore that would later become a very uh, a slow to heal wound and open the patient for risks of infections and other uh, injuries during their hospital stay. Um, the other parts to it were the fact that if you take somebody that's naturally not curved in a flat, straight way, uh, and you try to put them down and strap them down to a rigid backboard, they, uh, they have more difficulty breathing. Um, and we've seen this anecdotally. So the, the kind of curved spine little meme um, that we find who naturally walks stooped over her walker, and we try to put her on a backboard, um, she has more difficulty breathing. And if you add on to that an underlying chronic respiratory disease like COPD, now we're creating problems. And when you take healthy volunteers and you measure their pulmonary function tests before and after strapping them onto a backboard, these are just normal, healthy volunteers, we saw a 17% decrease in pulmonary function tests. So we found that what we had seen anecdotally in the street over the years, actually we have now literature that verifies it and measures it. Um, so we got stuck here because we had uh, enough literature that had been compiling over the years that suggested that you could say with confidence that in some patients the backboard was hurting people. And then what we needed to do is then weigh that against, well, what's the evidence that the backboard helps people? And we scoured the literature, and unfortunately, we don't have literature that says that backboards um, help people other than they are a means to uh, limit the motion of an injured spine. Um, but it forced us to consider, are there other ways to limit that motion um, that doesn't hurt people? And that really was the, the, the core motivation for coming into the, um, the update. Um, what we were careful about is that we didn't want to vilify the backboard. We didn't want to kind of uh, erase it because there really is no better tool for extricating a patient from a, from a motor vehicle or from a um, confined space than a rigid backboard where you can slide a patient um, out of whatever unfortunate position they're in. So as an extrication tool, it really is the best. And not that we have studies for this, but we just we know as uh, street providers that that is the best tool for extricating a patient out of many situations that we see day in, day out. So we wanted to be careful that we didn't completely erase it as a tool, um, but we also had to honor the limitations and the downsides to it. And there were other situations for that patient that's uh, unresponsive or that patient that has all four limbs broken um, with other suspected internal injuries. Um, the backboard was the quickest way to, cover, to really provide a full body splint if you had multiple extremity injuries. Um, and for a patient that's unresponsive, agitated, maybe at risk for vomiting, there's no safer way for that unreliable patient than to tilt them on their side and use gravity to facilitate your airway management when they do vomit. So for all those tools, uh, the backboard actually remains as a, an effective tool despite the limitations that we outlined before. You know, as we, Tim mentioned that we looked pretty, we looked very diligently through the literature to figure out if there was a a value to the backboard, and, and Tim mentioned that we really struggled to find much published literature on this. Um, uh, one of the things that was very interesting was some work by a guy named Hauswald out of New Mexico. Uh, he's one of the, the, pre, the most prolific uh, researchers around 
uh, spine management and proper means of spine immobilization. He and a couple others have done some very interesting studies, admittedly with very small numbers of people, using stop-motion photography, essentially taking healthy volunteers and placing them in a vehicle and then using the same kind of technology that some of the video game manufacturers use to map out uh, sports uh, athletes, basically, um, and looked at various different means to remove pe patients from vehicles and which mechanism m moved the spine the least. And I know that we've talked about this in the past, but I want to deliberate on this a little bit because, unfortunately, I think the message might have been a, a little bit misinterpreted. When these healthy volunteers were sitting in a car um, and we had professional EMS providers or firefighters attempt to manage their spine in one of four ways, either using manual, um, manual uh, immobilization, a short board or CAD, and then a long board. All of those mechanisms of, mo of moving the patient move the spine more than just asking the patient to remain, uh, to keep their spine rigid and step out of the vehicle. Now, I think it's important to acknowledge that these studies were done in seated patients in vehicles. Uh, this does not translate to patients in a supine position on the floor, in a bed. And the other thing that's important about this is that the seated patients essentially stood, pivoted, and then uh, laid on the litter themselves. And they did not necessarily walk a prolonged distance, and that's an important, another important piece of the study. And we tried to, the other piece of this, uh, we tried to clarify situations in which um, this would be appropriate in EMS, and certainly um, seated positions is the first important piece. We also recognize the patient needs to be able to follow commands. That means they cannot have head injury or be altered in any way. Again, this gets into your judgment of the severity of a head injury or the severity of a patient's uh, alteration of mental status. And the final thing, they have to be able to stand. So if they've got an injury to their lower extremity that would preclude their ability to stand, that would make this impossible. And in those situations, we would move them in another way because um, it's not safe to try to have them stand and then have them fall because of a lower extremity injury of some extent. So I think those are interesting things to consider as well that the MDPB was considering and came into some of our, our nuanced messaging around the cervical spine. Don, anything else to add about the process that we engaged in in, in the 2015 protocols? Uh, no, I, th I think that it's just important anytime we start talking about the, the patient and moving and self-extrication in that study is that one of the things that we always have to keep in mind is that these are patients who, in our world, would have failed the spinal clearance. So they are highly suspect of having a spinal injury. So when we're engaging in that practice that was described in the study of having a patient self-extricate, we need to remember that this is a person who very likely has a spinal injury of some kind, and that this is not a time to say, hey, let's walk across the football field, let's walk you know, outside of the house. Um, this is as little movement as possible. Yeah, and I think that's an important point. These are patients at high risk for an injury. Um, and again, the idea is you know, asking the patient to cooperate, holding their spine rigidly, stepping out, and then laying on a backboard immediately. <clears throat> the other part that this doesn't apply to is that transfer from the EMS cot to the ED bed. 
that still needs to remain a, a, a slide and a very careful um, spinal restrictive motion of coming from the ED cot over to the ED bed, not a, hey, scoot yourself over kind of thing. I think that's um, a good point. We don't have a study that shows that that's safe. Now, and we've got to be very careful that we don't extrapolate. We don't take this one study of seated patients, right, that are volunteers. It's sort of a concept study, and then all of a sudden mission creep that or spread that out to all the other strange street scenarios that we come in contact with. We really have to be careful that until the studies show that that or light the way that it's safe, um, we have to keep this to a, as close to the situation that study studied um, in order to be a pure evidence-based approach to this. I think there are going to be more studies coming, but until then, we really can't expand beyond what that story was. Yeah, I think that's important. And it's also a really nice transition into how is it going now and uh, what's happening. I, I think um, as we consider this, I think the first thing to consider is some of the... Um, work that Nate Yerkes uh, has done. Nate, formerly from United, is a paramedic who's practiced here in Maine. He had a very short period of time which he was practicing in Massachusetts, but he's come back to us and is currently working with Rick Petrie in the Atlantic Partners Group. And I think one of the things that I've always enjoyed about Nate is his interest in quality improvement and quality insurance, assurance. And Nate did a neat little study um, uh, with Tim on looking at um, rates of backboard use after the protocol um, went live in June and, and I'm looking at some of his work right now and it's really impressive to see that we did have a decrease in the number of backboards used uh, never uh, never getting to zero but decreased in the number of backboards used compared to cervical spine collars used where those two lines over 2012, 2014, and 2013 were really really close and married very closely they became more discrepant, suggesting that there's fewer backboards being used. He also looked at um, the number of spinal assessments that were done over that period of time um, in 12, 13, 14, and 15, uh, as well as the number of patients who passed or failed the spinal clearance process, and those remained relatively stable over that period of time. And then finally, he looked at the use of KEDS and the use of of standing takedowns, which really plummeted and fell off the screen after our protocol went live, which suggests that those practices are starting to to decrease. Um, and we had talked about that, uh, those practices in particular, in in, uh, uh, in the protocol update. So that that's one measure of how the the protocol has penetrated, the the decreased number of uh, longboards being used, the significant reduction in standing takedowns and KEDS, and then finally the similar rate of passing and clearance of, of the spine protocol. There are some uh, cases that have brought to light the possibility of uncertainty. We uh, alluded to some of this a little bit earlier, and I want to kind of highlight some of those cases. So, uh, I, and I think it's important to kind of just he maybe discuss and deliberate about these situations and spend some time considering them and come back to the patient and what the patient needs as we as we talk about these circumstances. So the first situation is a patient who's in a seated position who is off-road or has to uh, uh, travel some some distance from the uh, from this situ this the seated position they're in and the EMS litter. And I think this gets back to Tim's idea of mission creep, which is 
what we know about those situations is the safest thing for the patient is to stand, pivot, and lay on the um, lay on the litter. And uh, I think it was Don who mentioned we don't have any evidence to suggest that walking for prolonged periods of time over uneven or even flat terrain is safe. And the safest thing to do for that patient would be to uh, extricate them to the litter if there's any need to ambulate any, any significant distance. Uh, the other scenario that we've run into is a patient in a laying position. Um, I've personally seen two cases, one patient on the ground laying down, the other patient in bed laying down. Um, in the patient in the bed laying down, this is actually a pretty concerning uh, situation. The patient was involved in a rollover motor vehicle accident. He ended up having a fairly significant, unstable, high cervical injury. He had uh, self-extricated and went home, um, called EMS the next morning because uh, he was no longer intoxicated and had significant pain and was asked to stand from the bed and exit the home and then step into the ambulance where he was secured to the uh, litter there. Um, and the second case is a person Can, can we back up ground. to that for one sec? I'm, yes, I'm curious. I, I want to chat about this a little bit. So was that particular patient, was their spine managed at all? Like did they actually get a collar applied and... The answer is yes, but it was applied after they had exited the bedroom on their own power, walked out of the home, and entered into the vehicle. So what I find intriguing about that story, and then looking back at um, that one geriatric patient with the kind of different story in terms of moving stuff the day before, is that both of those situations were an injury that happened at a previous date that then EMS entered into this situation. And I think that it's really important that if we're looking at that, that uh, regardless of when the potential injury occurred, shouldn't change our index of suspicion for the actual possibility of injury in these patients. And that we need to be really diligent to say, okay, maybe your injury happened yesterday, maybe it happened a week ago, um, but if you haven't been seen by a clinician at that point, then we should start at square one with this. That's a really good point. I think the other piece to draw out of this is that both of those patients have been ambulatory between their injury and their interaction with EMS. Both of them had unstable fractures, um, and uh, I wonder if their ability to ambulate was mistaken as a um, uh, as a um, a, uh, a potential uh, or decreased the provider's impression that there was a, a potential injury. And I think it's fair to say that, just like uh, Don mentioned, duration from injury doesn't necessarily rule out the presence of a, a significant injury, as, and the ability to ambulate afterward doesn't necessarily rule out the, 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 um, uh, the potential for a significant injury. Uh, and you need to really evaluate the patient independent of those factors and consider their entire evaluation and exam. Now, the second situation I was mentioning is a, uh, another person who, was enter who um, happened to be laying on the ground, and the providers uh, brought the litter toward the patient but then had the patient stand from a laying position and then lay back onto the, this, the litter. And I think in both these situations, my impression is this is an extrapolation from our CAR study. And just like Tim mentioned, this concept of mission creep we know that seated patients who stand, pivot, and lay down are safe to do this, but we do not at this point in time have the same 
evidence to suggest that a patient who's laying down then stands up and either walks a significant amount of uh, distance or not is as safe to do as the seated position. And we tried to get to that in the December update of the protocols and ask folks to only apply this, issue, this, uh, this potential to patients in seated positions in which the litter can be brought immediately to them. We believe the safest practice in these laying positions or in a patient who, is, who the litter can't be brought immediately next to is to actually extricate them with a device. And that device is really up to your impression. That could be a board, it could be a scoop, it could be whatever you have available. But we think the safest thing to do in those situations with a patient who would have to traverse some time to get to the litter or is in a laying position would be to utilize a device to extricate them to the litter or move them to the litter uh, in the, uh, uh, rather than have them stand from a laying position or walk a significant distance. I think the one thing we want to remember is that um, once we get to the EMS stretcher, we want to make sure that the patient comes off of whatever that device was that was used to extricate them. Absolutely. Great point. Shy of a situation where the time that it would take to do that could be potentially detrimental to the patient, um, i.e. they need to be in an OR now. Um, that even that time during extrication, if it's going to be for a prolonged period of time, we want to actually think about um, that that does pose a risk to the patient potentially. Great. Agreed. I think the third scenario that we wanted to bring up um, is the idea of positioning on the litter once the spine is being immobilized. Um, so we don't have a ton of evidence here either, um, and uh, the MDPB deliberated about this uh, for a significant amount of time. What we know is that the anatomic position of any joint is probably the safest position to immobilize the patient in, short of when we need to engage in the position of function around the hand or the arm, for instance, the wrist. Uh, but the anatomic position is probably the safest for initial immobilization. And um, the anatomic position of the spine is flat. So the probably what we, what we believe right now, best, based on the best available information is that laying the patient's supine is the preferential position when the spine is being mobilized. Now, uh, anecdotally, I've noticed a lot of patients who come in with spine precautions but are placed in a, in a seated position, and that is not necessarily the message that the MDPB wanted to send. There might be situations in which this is best for the patient overall, but those should be the exception rather than the rule. And the, the, the typical position we'd expect the patient to be in when their spine is being immobilized is supine. Now, what would be some of the, the things that would um, necessitate sitting the patient up? Certainly one is airway protection in the case of any significant facial or airway or hemorrhage around the airway or facial injury. Uh, patients who uh, Tim alluded to earlier who are elderly, who have respiratory compromise, in whom laying flat decreases their ability to oxygenate or ventilate properly. And then there might be some patients who have intractable pain that is uh, resistant to uh, pain management um, when they lay flat. And those patients, we would only elevate their head um, enough to relieve their pain. But again, these are usually, these are the exception and not the rule, and most of our patients should and can be managed in a supine position. 
If the patient is not managed in a supine position, I think this gets back to something Tim mentioned earlier. Your ability to communicate, your decision-making, and your thought process is essential, and that needs to be passed on to the hospital providers taking the patient's care over. Yeah, I think it's one of the two areas that, um, that we need to kind of nudge us back in line with the protocol eight months in. It's the idea that really it should be rare that they're not lying flat on their back when you're immobilizing the spine on the padded stretcher. And the second one is the idea of self-extrication is very much limited to sitting in a vehicle uh, with the cot brought right up next to the patient. Um, those are the two nudges that I think we've seen the mission creep. Um, people sitting up as a default rather than an exception in, on the padded cot when they have their spine immobilized and then people ambulating far more than we intended uh, to get to the ambulance or the cot out of different uh, scenarios as far as self-extrication. And you brought up another really important point, Tim, I think, to add to that list of the patient who is asked to who's asked to move themselves from the EMS litter to the hospital um, stretcher uh, when spinal precautions have been uh, have been initiated and I think that's another important thing to remember that that's an active transport of the patient from hospital EMS providers rather than the patient doing it themselves. And we really need the EMS providers to take the lead on that and to hold uh, the ED staff to the intention of that protocol change because sometimes once we go through the ED we subconsciously defer to the ED nurses on that movement and they we really are the experts at what our protocol is so making sure that we teach to that in a professional respectful way and say no 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 we really need to do this as if the patient was still on a backboard like the old days right yeah. and figure out how to do that with a slide board or multiple people shifting over uh, we really need to rely on us EMS providers to to maintain that diligence and that attention to detail yeah, I think that's an important point. These are our collective patients, and, and our care continues until our responsibility to the patient is, is complete, and that responsibility includes transitioning to the hospital both physically as well as um, leaving our legacy of the patient, including our verbal report and our written report. Now, one final thing I wanted to bring up, and, and this is an, you know interesting, I, um, another case that I was encountered with recently that was brought to my attention and, and what I think this case does is it really drives home the importance of these changes, and I think it's a nice way to, to end this dialogue. This is a case of a patient who was transferred to my hospital from another hospital. The patient had a spine injury, had been maintained on the original EMS uh, litter, excuse me, backboard. Um, the providers who were doing the transfer from the original hospital to my hospital inquired about that. They were told, maintain it. Uh, the patient got to our hospital, the backboard was removed, and she had a significant pressure, more than just a pressure sore, it was a pressure ulcer that ended up being a pretty significant piece of her management while she was in the hospital. And I think it just goes to, to really highlight the importance of what Tim and the MDPB did with Don in uh, 2015, decreasing the likelihood of those injuries by decreasing the exposure to the backboard. It reminds us as EMS providers to... Um, limit our backboard time, even in the situations where we feel a backboard is important, be it for immobilization, be it for rapidity of transport, be it for um, unstable patients or patients with high likelihood of vomiting, head injury, agitated patients, etc. In all those situations, as much as possible, we want to limit our backboard time because the theoretic things we read about in the literature 
happen to our patients here in Maine too. And this, this is an unfortunate situation and this uh, prolonged board time in this case led to a pretty significant um, uh, ulcer in this patient's, uh, in patient's experience. So maybe, uh, maybe wrapping it up at this point, I, I think um, really appreciate everything that all of you do. I think uh, this is a very a nuanced conversation we wanted to bring back to you eight months into our, uh, into our experience with this new concept of, of uh, spine management. We recognize that um, there are questions that come up that we couldn't have foreseen, and I think some of these clinical vignettes we brought up hopefully clarify the questions that folks have had. If additional questions uh, arise from this discussion, please send them to Don and we'll address them in uh, upcoming uh, podcasts through our FAQ section. I want to leave you with a couple of reminders. Um, uh, remember, I think the important thing is where we came from and our history, our rich tradition of being able to do this do this spine evaluation process very well. Um, our numbers prove that when we're diligent and when we apply the protocol properly, it works and works really well. I also want to remind you of the tenets of our 2015 protocol change and something that we've tried to trumpet, which is that we are not changing who we immobilize, we are changing how we immobilize. And instead of using a rigid litter, a soft mat, and then putting a backboard between the patient and the mat, we are using the rigid litter as the rigid surface and the soft mat as the padding for that rigid surface, and then applying a cervical collar to completely immobilize the spine. And then finally, I think it's important to, to reflect on the things that maybe weren't clear in either July or in December when we updated the protocols, reminding ourselves um, about this concept of sitting versus standing um, and who it is safe to have self-extricate, who it isn't safe to have self-extricate, the idea of proper positioning on the litter and that the preferred and the, the safest position based on what we know now is a supine position. And while there are certain circumstances in which we would sit a patient up, those are the exception rather than the rule. And then I, I think coming back to that final case and reminding ourselves to limit backward time as much as possible, we all have a role in that as EMS providers, as emergency medicine providers, and as trauma surgeons or neurosurgeons, we all have a role in that. And we should take the opportunity to dialogue and deliberate at the point of patient care regarding what's important um, uh, for that patient. With that, I think that's an end, unless Don or Tim have anything else to mention. I just want to say that if you've stuck with us this far, thank you. Um, you know, a lot of this information is um, information we discussed during the protocol update. Um, but as you've probably figured out from our conversation today, there's there's been a fair amount of concern about how our message got out originally and we, we just we're going to keep messaging about this so just be prepared for that we're going to keep touching on this um, we saw it under our old um, protocol we saw over time we, we saw the quality of our exam change um, so I, w I would just expect that we're going to keep messaging about this we're going to keep ensuring that providers keep um, keep the patient in the forefront of their mind and that we're providing good care the only, uh, there are just three things I want to say. One is that I am, I am so proud of all of our EMS providers in Maine that have been able to do this protocol update statewide and do it so consistently well. Um, we have had a couple anecdotal stories that, that, that uh, we raised today, but the, the profound um, norm and the profound majority is that people have done this transition in a patient centric, patient-sensitive way and done it incredibly safely. 
Um, and I think we all need to be really, really proud of that, that we all as individuals have owned this, have studied it, have listened, made sure that we as individuals understood the details. Um, and there are two parts of, of the, um, the exam, the neurologic exam, that I want to just spend a couple seconds on. And, and one of those is that we often write sensory exam is normal, motor exam is normal. And I want to make sure that we are all consistently using this same definition of normal. So when I say that a, a sensory exam is normal for me uh, when I'm clearing a spine, that means that I've assessed both soft touch and sharp touch, not just can you feel my fingers rubbing across your skin. I really have to be sure that I get all the tracks within the spine. And by doing both soft touch and sharp touch, then I'm assuring myself that I'm not missing a partial uh, spinal injury that doesn't go through and through across the spine um, because if I cover both those uh, sensation tracks, I'm getting a complete exam. Uh, and classically, the way Peter Goth has taught that, it's with a Q-tip on a uh, wood stick, and you break it in half, leaving a sharp uh, wooden splinter and then a soft Q-tip, and that sharp first soft. And we can extrapolate to other um, pieces of equipment that we carry that can mimic sharp and soft, but that's what it really is the, uh, the base for that. And the second part is the normal motor exam. Uh, and being careful, that's not just wiggle your toes, wiggle your fingers. That is not a complete normal motor exam. And the way that I cover all the nerve roots and all the peripheral nerves is that I make the patient give me an A-OK sign. That's pointer finger and tip of the thumb coming together and then spreading the middle ring and little finger out. And then I try to break the circle of the pointer finger and the thumb and knowing that that strength, if I can't break that um, by putting my finger in the hole and then the pulling out, that that's a normal exam of those um, peripheral nerves and C-spine nerve roots. And then when I try to bring the other three fingers together when they're spread out wide, that's the final check. I do that on both sides. So the last part of the motor exam on the upper extremities is, is creating a thumbs-up sign like you're hitchhiking, and then make sure you can't close that thumb back down towards the other fingers. And then I have them bring their great toe up and then test the strength there and then push down with their toes like they're pushing on the gas pedal. And that, if it's all normal, is a complete normal motor exam for me. Great, Tim. Thanks for, thanks for that. And, again, thank you for listening. Thank you for, for participating, and thank you for everything that you do. I, uh, I want to end on something we've ended on in the past, which is that while our time is short with our patients, our impact is, is tremendously meaningful, that the patient's care starts with us, and our ability to establish excellent care and transition that to the hospital is essential for good patient outcomes. I also want to remind you that quality starts with us, and once we initiate good quality, the hospitals have an awesome opportunity to maintain that. Thank you, and be safe, and please... Um, Tune in in the future, and the next topic we'll be talking about is the protocol updates, how to be involved. And we're going to also talk about some of the novel new anticoagulants, what they are, what they do, and how they work, and what they mean for you as an EMS provider. Thanks again, and have a great day.